0: One of the best-known classic novels in Chinese history is The Red Chamber, also known in English as The Story of the Stone.
1: It's the great Chinese novel known in Chinese as Honglo Meng. Author name is Cao Xueqin. This is Ronald Egan,
0: a professor of East Asian languages and cultures at Stanford University. The book was published in 1791. It's so celebrated that there's a whole field of scholarship dedicated to it, called Red Studies. There have been at least 14 cinematic adaptations of the novel. Little Women, by comparison, has seven. The 1988 adaptation is more than 12 hours long, the longest Chinese film ever made.
1: And with each adaptation comes a new approach. About, I think, maybe eight or ten years ago, a new serialized TV uh, version was going to be made. And the whatever company it was that was gonna produce this was very clever.
0: Instead of casting their show as usual, Hunan Television Company decided to hold a competition. Hundreds of thousands of hopefuls tried out for the main roles. The lucky few who made it past the first audition were entered into a year-long televised competition. The actors competed in trials and elimination games. Finally, it was time to make the casting choice. And then
1: the viewers got to vote.
0: It was like America's Got Talent or The Voice, only
1: really different. Can you imagine such a thing happening in the USA for an 18th century novel? I mean, who who would even try to mount such a such a thing, right? Because how many how many people would tune in to watch? But in China this became a really a really hot item to tune in to watch because people are so excited about it. People know this novel very well, and they have very strong feelings. Oh, this actor would be great. That actress would be is the wrong type, you know, for that role, right?
0: Unfortunately, the director Hugh May didn't agree with the audience's casting decisions. When she refused to accept the chosen cast, she was
1: replaced these are fictional characters right but they they have a kind of, they have a kind of life of their own in, in Chinese culture even today
0: Welcome to Writ Large a podcast about how books change the world I'm Zachary Davis In each episode I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history For this episode I sat down with Professor Ronald Egan to discuss the story of the stone
1: this novel almost unanimously would be considered by Chinese readers from the time it first began to circulate down to the present day as the finest piece of Chinese literature that was ever produced.
0: The book was finished around 1750, during the Chanlong Emperor's reign, in the Qing Dynasty. These times are remembered as high points of the Qing Dynasty, a time of power, prestige, and social harmony. But this book tells a different story one of harmful traditions, political corruption, and intergenerational
1: conflict. This is not a frivolous novel. You know, this is not just uh, escapist. This is about as far away from escapist as you could get, okay, because it's really shining a very harsh light on things that are very worrisome, that are very bothersome. The novel is set at the end of the 17th and into the 18th century. The novel is centered on one family— who lived in Beijing, a very wealthy, a very elite aristocratic family named the Jia clan. And the novel, over the course of 120 chapters, describes the life and the rise and eventually the decline of this great family who ends up in deep political trouble with the emperor and the court. Woven into that story is a love story. And the love story takes place, surprisingly uh, enough, among young members of the family. Really, they're not even adults. They're adolescents. The young people are cousins who live together in the family's large estate. In traditional China, cousins could marry if they didn't have the same surname. The girl's mother could be a member of the Jia family, but her father, Cannot be. So consequently, she has a different surname. So even though she's a first cousin, she's a potential future wife for the young man. And the crux of the love story is to see which of the many female cousins is going to end up getting betrothed to the young boy whose name is Bao Yu. So there are these two stories that are going on simultaneously the story of the lives of the young people who are maybe 13 or 14 when the novel opens, and maybe 19, which is fully marriageable age by the time the novel closes. And um, that story is embedded in this larger story of the fortunes of the clan. The story doesn't end well for Baoyu and his love. The tragedy of that love story, part of the novel, is that eventually the young man is forced against his will to marry uh, a young woman not of his choice, not the one he really loves. And um, this is not just a disappointment in love. It actually brings about the death of the woman that he's really in love with, Dayu, who he's not allowed to marry. And it ruins the young man's life, too. He's married by trick to an alternate cousin, not, not the one he would have preferred to marry. And um, when he realizes how he has been tricked shortly thereafter, he leaves the family and becomes a Buddhist monk, which is, from the family's point of view, this is not very different from suicide, actually. And so it's, it's not just a little youthful, you know, adolescent disappointment in love. It actually, the novel depicts the destruction of these young people's lives by parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles who are cast in the novel in a very unfavorable light to be is quite uh insensitive to the emotional preferences of their own children yeah and and the consequences are dire so
0: this book reminds me a little bit of Marcel Proust mm-hmm. in that it's not really about the plot it's about a lot of other things. Could you talk about some of the texture of the book? What, what are some of the the details that um, readers over the centuries have found so rewarding?
1: First of all, it presents a extremely rich texture of life in an age which is, let's face it, gone. This is the texture of life in imperial china when imperial china was at its height before imperial china came to realize there were other civilizations and cultures beyond its borders that would in the 19th century begin to threaten it i've heard chinese scholars say and i think they are right that this novel could not have been written a hundred years later because a hundred years later now you 're in the era of the of the boxer wars with england you 're in the era of the encroachment on Chinese borders by European colonial powers. The sense of pride the sense of of confidence um, is is already eroded if not gone. That reality had not yet appeared uh, inside China at the time this novel is written. China is still immensely advanced, immensely proud, and immensely traditional. But in the world of that novel, not even an inkling of that has begun to appear. Another reason the novel is admired as much as it is, is that all is not rosy in the portrait of China that this novel conveys. Okay, This novel is famous for... Being extremely candid, extremely honest at looking at the um, aspects of Chinese society that Chinese people at the time would have been troubled by. For example, there's the unequal treatment of men and women. Without exception, all of the young daughters and female cousins in the family as they turn 16, 17, 18 years old, one by one, they're all married off by the grown-ups in the family. Uh, And without exception, these are unhappy marriages.
0: In the world of the novel, arranged marriages were the norm. There was really no getting around it.
1: And the novel goes out of its way to show that it's, it's worse than the young people having no choice. It's rather that the older generation who's doing the arranging of the marriage makes these arrangements for the worst possible reasons, (laughs) okay? So, like, they owe somebody a debt, and in order to cancel the debt, they agree to marry one of the 16-year-old girls to that father's son. The novel, in this respect, could be considered kind of an indictment of of Chinese society of the time. In other words, it has this subversive aspect to it. And I think especially if you're female <laughs> in the 18th century or 19th century China, this novel has enormous interest for you. We can imagine a female reader saying to herself, wow, this is the society I'm living in. Look what I have to be prepared to face, you know. Now, this is not to say... That there's no happiness, that there's no joy, that there's no gaiety in the, in the novel. There's, there's plenty of laughter, there's parties, there's wit, you know, but there's this other thing, too. There's this other element, too. So, if you ask why Chinese readers have, for 300 years, so loved this novel, um, it, it, they respect it for its honesty. Because to face these problems, which are really endemic problems in traditional Chinese society, to face them as candidly and as openly as this author does, takes a lot of courage, actually. It takes a lot of courage.
0: Yeah, it, it strikes me as a testament to the power of a great artist who can shed the illusions that we might have of the past.
1: You know, it's, it sometimes happens in, in world literature that a particular work comes along, in this case a novel, and you and you say to yourself, how did he do that? Because there's really no precedent for doing it this way. So this novelist, he must have been a genius to somehow transcend the, the conventions. There is earlier fiction in, in China. There's, there are earlier novels, um, some excellent ones, but they don't begin to have the psychological depth or the Uh, critical eye turned on society that, that this novel does. Who was the author? What do we
0: know about his life? And what caused him to write this work of genius?
1: We only know bits and pieces about the author's life. But what we do know, what we can reconstruct, it seems that to some extent... Um, that this novel is based on the author's own family and his own family experiences. And that's an experience of uh, decline and eventually disaster. Some of the worst things that happened to the family in the novel, including an imperial search and confiscation of their property toward the end of the novel, we now know that that happened to the author's family. And it probably happened when he was a young boy. Um, And so he has understandably vivid memories of that. The author's father was a high official in the Qing court. Um, The author himself was not a high official, but the family has a hereditary title, and so they're well off. But beyond that, some scholars like to speculate that the young boy named Bao Yu, who is the hero of the uh, romantic uh, subplot Some scholars like to speculate that that is the author as an adolescent, but that may or may not be true.
0: So let's move now into a discussion of this book's longer-term influence and impact. Apparently Mao was a fan. Can you tell us about what we know about his admiration and and its role in (laughs) in kind of communist leadership?
1: Uh, He was a fan. He was a fan. He is said to have uh, read it several times, cover to cover. Um. One of the things that generally is so admired about the novel, and I have to imagine that this is one of the attractions it held for Chairman Mao, is the subtlety of the psychological portraits of these characters. We see their public face and we see their private face. We see them scheming, we see them plotting. We see them doing all kinds of, of underhanded things. And if you want to learn about, you know, human nature, if you want to learn about not just the sunny side of human nature, but the darker sides, um, this novel can provide a great education.
0: The story of the stone was very much of its time, commenting on personal and political conventions of its day. But it was also ahead of its time, foreshadowing changes that would come to China over a
1: century later. So let's say it was completed around the year 1750. It wasn't until the year 1911, so more than 160 years later, that the imperial era in China came to an end. The Chinese Revolution is 1911. Okay, The Chinese Communist movement, the Chinese Communist Party isn't founded until about 10 years after that. And Mao and their other early leaders of the communist movement in China, who were, of course, so critical, so hypercritical of traditional Chinese society in in many, if not most, of its respects, of course they seized upon this novel because what we could say about it is that it's 150, 180 years ahead of its time, you know. So in many many of the reforms that the communist leadership will be calling for in the 1920s, 1930s, and, and up until they come to power in 1949, and then begin to implement their new vision of Chinese society in the 1950s and 60s. Many of these, like equal status for both genders equal rights for women challenging the authority of older generation over young generation challenging the blind acceptance and obedience to the dictates of filial piety these all become mainstays of the Chinese communist vision for reforming chinese society and they are they're there in the novel they're there in the novel so this author he's he's way, he's way ahead of his time he's way ahead of his time
0: so we've discussed how it criticizes certain you know gender inequality or or perhaps uh, abuses of elders towards their children um what what chinese values does it affirm or does it um, pass on and if if you're a Chinese reader of this text, what scripts does it provide to you about how to live a good life?
1: There are admirable characters in the novel. They aren't um shallow in the respect that um they lead very, very um, simple, happy lives. There are admirable characters who struggle with the problems of the society that the author goes out of his way to depict, and yet they struggle with these problems without allowing themselves to become corrupted by them. For example, the father of Bao Yu. Bao Yu is the, the young man protagonist. and His father um, is, is a respectable man. He... Um, is completely out of touch with his son and out of tune with his son, but you don't finish the novel thinking that he's a bad man. You, you finish the novel with a keen sense of here's a good man who is struggling to retain his ethics and morality in a society in which it is challenged almost every day. There's a broader lesson to the book as well,
0: a lesson embedded in yet another story.
1: The novel has a mythological frame that I haven't even referred to yet. It's called The Story of the Stone, Shirto-ji in Chinese, which is an alternate title to The Dream of the Red Mansion. Um, It's called The Story of the Stone because in this mythological framework, which appears... In the first chapter and in the last chapter, and pokes through the day to day life of the family at various points in the novel. The several leading characters, including the young boy and the young girl that he falls in love with, they originally are um, inhabitants of the heavens. They are beings in heaven, and they are sent down to the earth to lead a human life by a, by a fairy in heaven whose express purpose in sending them down to our world is to get them to see the illusion of human life. So this is very much a Buddhist message. And I mentioned that at the very end of the novel, Bao Yu withdraws from society rejects his family and goes off and becomes a Buddhist monk. So that that's another way of, of thinking about this novel. It's a, a story about disillusionment with the world, especially with the aspects of the world um, concerned with prestige, material wealth, society's honor, et cetera, et cetera, which Buddhism, of course, has no patience for. We're told in the first chapter, this is going to be a story about learning the illusion of life.
0: And yeah, no, I think about it, I mean, you could title this The Illusion of a Big House. That's right. That's that right. can be taken from you. That's right. By earthly power. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: Is there any other um, influence or impact of the book on Chinese or world culture that you would like to comment
1: on? One of the features that is the most vivid in readers' minds as they read and after they finish the novel is the brightness the sparkling quality of intelligence and wit that we see in the young girls in this novel the girls are shown throughout to be more smarter quicker and not only that but but even Purer, more wholesome, more admirable than, than the young men. And if you look at the way writers in the centuries after write about young girls in Chinese culture, there's a tremendous amount of influence. Um, because what this author does, of course, is that he, he captures this, this aspect of young female life at the stage of their lives when they are so carefree and they're so smart, and they haven't begun to feel uh, the constraints that will be imposed upon adult women, and and you know in in patriarchal Chinese society, which is the society our author lived in, to do this, to show the girls, you know, being smarter than the than the boy. Uh, this is this is also very very this is very um, unexpected this is very iconoclastic actually there is even a preface by the author in which he says this and I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna paraphrase he says now in my old age when I reflect back on, the young female companions of my youth, I realized that they were in every way both intellectually and morally superior to the grave gentleman I am supposed to have become, but have not become. (laughs) And so I vowed then and there, having had this realization that I would write a portrait of these charming companions of my youth. And that's what he says in the preface.
0: If someone asked you at a cocktail party, how did this book change the world? What would be your pithy response?
1: This book changed the Chinese world as soon as it appeared by providing readers with an unprecedented portrait of the complexity, the problems of Chinese society of the day, and the way that what had been assumed to be unquestionable social values of patriarchy, of older generation over younger generation, of male empowerment over female, pointing out the human cost of all of those assumptions. Writ
0: Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writlarge is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter, at writlargepod, and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next week on RIT Large, I sit down with historian Heidi Torek to talk about Walter Lippmann's Public Opinion, a work of media studies that's a century old, but as relevant as ever. So he basically kicks off with this book a whole bunch of questions that we're still trying to answer 100 years later, including... Does the press set the agenda? Uh, Does the press do things that maybe other institutions like government agencies or courts should be doing? Uh, What really are the effects of media? These are enormous questions we're still grappling with and arguing about. You can hear this episode right now in the Lyceum app. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M.